Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. Today we are going to be talking about how we can know if God is with us. So, in beginning to discuss this, I want to read a passage from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, where we read, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin. That is, Sin is the name of a place, not actually uh, the word Sin as it is in English. According to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff, with, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Now, the Israelites had just been delivered from a couple of centuries of slavery and oppression, supernaturally, by God. They had seen plagues that devastated the world's global superpower, Egypt. They saw God separate the sea and make a way for their whole nation to walk through on dry ground. God provided them with bread from heaven for their food. Then, after a few days without water, they were ready to stone Moses because of the inconvenience and asked, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is very much a mirror for us to examine ourselves. And there are different ways to come at this question. How do we know if God is with us? And many times, it can be tied to the idea of assurance of salvation, because if God is, quote-unquote, with you, then you would have to be saved. And that's not what we're going to focus on, uh, at least that aspect of it today. I've talked in the last couple of weeks on assurance of salvation. So uh, if you desire to hear about things about assurance of salvation, how to have biblical assurance of salvation, then I would recommend go, go listen to those previous episodes. What we are going to focus more on um, today is how do we know God is with us in the sense of, well, nothing is working out and all I have are hardships. Where is God in my life? Now, personally, uh, my wife and I feel like we're in the midst of that kind of season. We have difficulty on every side, uh, progress almost nowhere, it seems, and discouragement upon discouragement, opposition after opposition, roadblock after roadblock. We have health issues with children and pets, 
increasing financial obligations that were unexpected, concerns over my job, a lack of sleep, lack of spare time, family drama, etc. And it is in seasons like this that you can get this sense of, Lord, have I done something wrong? Am I where you want me to be? Am I doing what you want me to do? And there's an interesting thing there that sheds some light on a season like this. But instead of trying to build a case for the answer and giving you the answer at the end of the lesson, I'm going to give it to you at the beginning and spend the rest of the lesson explaining it and helping you understand how to apply it. Uh, real quick, let's uh, read Second uh, Chronicles chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now when we consider that statement, the Lord is with you when you are with him, we tend to focus on the first half, which says the Lord is with you, because that's what we understand. That's what we want. We want to know if God is supporting us in our endeavors, our lives, etc. And you see, that is sometimes just a problem. Not that wanting to know God is with us in our labor or life is bad, but how we frame it. The focus needs to be on the second half. We need to be more asking the question, Lord, am I with you? Because when we ask, Lord, are you with me? We're asking whether or not we have God's support or blessing in what we are doing. And things seem to be not going well. Hardships are multiplying. You feel alone or oppressed. You know, you're just at this point of, uh, well, I can't make progress, Lord. Well, progress in what? What's the goal? What's the agenda of our lives? You see, we want God to rubber stamp our lives, our desires, our agenda. And that is not always a wrong thing. Many times, we want to serve the Lord, and that's what we're striving to do. But the focus is off. You see, the Bible, for example, it doesn't really try to prove God's existence per se. This is by way of analogy. It just it just it does state that there is evidence to show it. You know, the firmament showeth his handiwork and it glorifies God. Um, you know, creation conscience bear witness to God. But those kind of passages, they're not trying to prove it. It's not giving an apologetic or an argument necessarily. It's it's just, just assuming it. It's stating that there is evidence and it just assumes God's existence. Well, in the same manner. The Bible never really argues about whether or not God is in control or whether or not he has an agenda. It just assumes it. God has an agenda. There is something, there is an overarching will and plan that God is actually doing. And he is moving all things according to the purpose of his own will. Now, more detailed questions about foreknowledge and election and those sorts of things. We've done whole episodes on that in the past. Um, you just scroll up in either on the podcast page or on the website page, and you will see them. Um, 
so I won't go into those here. But here's just a couple passages for you to consider that really just state that if God's will will be done, he has an agenda that he is going to accomplish. Uh, Isaiah chapter 46 verse 10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In Job 42, 2, uh, Job says, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If something is God's purpose, and it's his plan, it will happen. It cannot be undone. Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Uh, so really to summarize this point, God does have an agenda. He is working on doing things. That's a truth to be accepted. It's not debated. And in the philosophical, theological side of Christianity, um, there's much false things being stated on both ends of this, there's people who take the, almost the exhaustive divine determinism side, where God meticulously determines all things. You know, He's even controlling your thoughts, and but that that's ultimately the Calvinistic side, and that ultimately makes God the author of all evil. That's not debatable; it's just objectively true. And then you have, but you have people who overreact to the sovereignty of God uh, when it's defined biblically. And they go towards the free will of man side, and they overemphasize the free will of man and negate, and really just kind of slant God's sovereignty and lower God's sovereignty to uphold man's free will. And say that, well, God doesn't know anything beyond what he himself does, which is ironically the same thing that Calvinism teaches. And that's more the open theism, you know, kind of side of things. And both of those are wrong. The two were held in tension quite well. God doesn't need to control all things to know what's going to happen and still accomplish his will. That's a very low view of God to think that he does have to meticulously control all, exhaustively control all things in a deterministic sense. Man has free will and he chooses things. God knows what man will choose and is still accomplishing his will despite the free will choices of man. And I'll, get, I'll give some examples of some of this in, in a little bit. But again, for just exhaustively talking about that, in, uh, in the, as it pertains to foreknowledge, um, go look up our lesson on foreknowledge. But God has an agenda. He's going to accomplish his agenda. That doesn't mean that you don't have free will. I just needed to clarify that. But as it pertains to what we're doing, the question has to be asked is, you know, if God is working and he's doing things, he's moving his agenda forward, it's going to happen. He knows it. We And we can have confidence that God's perfect will in things will be done, and sometimes permissive will, but that's a different conversation. His will will be done. That is exactly what the scripture says. But the question has to be asked is, what side of his working are you on? And again, here is a basic summary of the answer. The Lord is with you when you are with him. You can state it this way. If you are with him, then he is with you. The condition there is, if you are with him, the promise, then he is with you. So to be with him means that you are committed to his will, his purpose, his agenda. He can lead however he sees fit. You don't care about the destination. It's God's life to direct. 
you gave it to him. It's called salvation. So let's just kind of pivot a little bit to discuss when things fail, quote unquote, whenever things don't seem to go the way that they should. Well, we'll give a couple of examples. In Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 35 through 37, we read, After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in so doing. So he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made the ships in Ezion Geber. Then Eliezer, the son of Dedavahu of Merishah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. So Jehoshaphat, who was a godly king, made allies with the wicked king of Israel in the north against the counsel of the Lord. He should not have done it. And he joined in an economic venture with them to send ships to Tarshish. You know, to, in some places you hear about them bringing gold from Tarshish um, in different places in the, in the Bible. And so Jehoshaphat pretty much... Uh, pretty much enters into an agreement with to that they were both going to send ships to Tarshish. It was going to be an economic venture together. And this endeavor by Jehoshaphat failed. You know, God stopped it. God broke their ships because he was not supposed to join himself with a wicked king. So Jehoshaphat failed. There was a failure on his part. There was a failure in this. Um, David, in 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 9, we read, Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now this was David's fault. David did not transport the ark the way of the, the law of Moses had stated. The Levites were supposed to carry it. It was not supposed to be put on an oxen cart. And this resulted in a servant of his, Uzzah, being killed. And so it was David's fault. This is a failure. Numbers 20, verses 8 through 12, we read, Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, this is Moses, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses disobeyed God. God told him to speak to the rock, not hit it. And this is after the other passage that we read at the beginning. And Moses didn't believe God, is what he says. And so Moses just struck the rock, and God still in his mercy brought forth water. But God punished Moses, saying, hey, you're not going to be entering into the promised land because of this. And so 
This resulted in Moses, the one who brought them up out of Egypt, to not be able to be the one to lead them into the promised land of Canaan. It was a failure on his part. Now these three, Jehoshaphat, David, and Moses, in these instances, were failures on the part of otherwise godly servants who were still blessed by God and and belonged to him. But because of their disobedience, God was not with them in these things. God had to go against them to uphold his own righteousness. However, sometimes a person turns in such a manner that they don't recover. You see, Jehoshaphat, Moses, and David understood their error. Sometimes people don't understand their error, or when they understand it, they refuse to humble themselves and repent. Saul, for example, was appointed king by God. He was called by name and anointed by the prophet Samuel. He was filled with the Spirit in the beginning, where we read in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Then it happened, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, this is Saul, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day, when they came to the hill there. Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. So even though he was filled with the Spirit of God, God changed his heart, and he was called by name to be king over Israel. Afterwards, Saul directly disobeyed God's commandment to him, and the prophet Samuel came. And this is in 1 Samuel 15, verses 17 through 23, where we read, Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, as he was humble, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey obey the voice of the Lord. And went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So notice the exchange here between Samuel and Saul. Samuel asks why Saul disobeyed God. Saul denies that he disobeyed God and justifies his actions. He said, well, I changed the plan and I did something else for him. Samuel responds, To obey is better than whatever you could offer him. From this point on, God was not with Saul, but was against him. Uh, Consider this, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 and 15. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. God sent an evil spirit. Now, it's not talking about his own spirit, as that the Holy Spirit could do evil, but it was for a demonic spirit 
that came forth from God. God sent a demonic spirit to him to torment him. And notice that others around Saul even noticed it. Saul ultimately was killed in battle in judgment. Now here's the question. What was God's plan? God was the one who appointed Saul king. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 17, we read, When Samuel saw Saul, that's what Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. So Saul was picked out and pointed out to the prophet of God, Samuel, by God himself. Then Saul failed to obey God. Look at what is said here, 1 Samuel 13, verses 13 through 14. Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Did you catch that? If Saul had obeyed God and had endured his testing, then God was going to establish his lineage as the kingly line over Israel forever. But because Saul refused to obey after a certain point, he was cast away and became an enemy of God. Now, this is exactly what was said to King Asa in the passage that we quoted at the beginning. Let's read it again. 2 Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. See, you can be on the right path that God wanted you to walk in, but God will let you make your own choice. He's not forcing you to follow him. He is making available all grace, and abounding it towards you for your victory over all manner of sin and temptation, but he is not forcing your hand to receive it or employ it. Now, we've considered a couple of failures, quote-unquote, already. We have Jehoshaphat, David, and Moses. God still used all three, and they served him until death. We also have Saul, who disobeyed God and never returned, never recovered from it. But there is another kind of, quote-unquote, failure, though. There is apparent failure. Now, what do I mean by apparent failure? By this, I mean that there are times and seasons when God himself is leading you through a time or situation where you perceive it as a failure, but God is accomplishing exactly what he truly desired. It's actually his perfect will. Now, these are the hardest, I believe, to understand and endure as humans because it takes a, an eternal perspective. Uh, for example, consider these uh, situations that would be considered to be sad or, you know, uh, lost people would consider them a waste. Um, and sometimes believers say like, oh, that's just a sad ending for something that otherwise could have led to something great. Uh, consider this a uh, couple, just bullet point a couple of uh, little points. Uh, consider Dr. Robert Jaffray. Uh, he was a missionary. Uh, he died in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II 
while laboring to bring the gospel to tribes in Erie and Jaya, uh, also called Papua New Guinea today. Uh, it's sad, you know, just he went over there, died in a Japanese concentration camp, just kind of got caught over there during World War II, and died from his old age in a concentration camp. Uh, you also have uh, Russell Dibler. Similarly, he was a missionary, died in the same Japanese concentration camp during World War II while trying to bring the gospel to tribes in Erie and Jaya, right? Oh, it's just so sad. I mean, he was relatively young, too. Uh, you have uh, a couple of other examples. Uh, Stanley Albert Dale and Phil Masters, uh, missionaries, murdered by over a hundred cannibals for bringing the gospel to them. Right? Well, what good came from that? Right? They just died. Um, both middle-aged. They were not over their prime. Oh, here's a hard one. Um, Minnow Voth, Jean and Lois Newman, with their four children. Uh, Paul, he was nine. Stephen was five. Joyce, three. And Jonathan, one. There was a plane crash in the mountains of Papua New Guinea, which are formerly called Erie and Jaya. And I want to focus on that last one. Because sometimes we see things like a whole family, almost, dying in just plane crash. I was even reading a book, uh, Isabel Kuhn, uh, in the arena. Uh, just the other day, and she was talking about how two separate missionary families died just a couple of days of each other in just sad plane accidents. Um, but in this one, you had seven people, a pilot and six members of the Newman family, all serving to bring the gospel to a large yet unreached place. I mean, children died in that crash. Not all of them, though. Here's an ex excerpt from Book Lords of the Earth. With the right wing gone, Mike Papa Hotel, that was the plane's call sign, whiplashed downward in a spew of high-octane gasoline. The left wing was ripped off by another tree, and the tail section just behind the cabin was snapped off by a 70-degree slope of flinty shale. The fuselage screeched down over the shale and slammed against a hedge of young trees, preventing it from plunging into the Seng River. The wail of shredding aluminum died under the explosive whoosh of gasoline fire. Cracking flames jetted through the control panel and burst in through the two ruptured doors, incinerating, melting. Nine-year-old Paul Newman, sitting far in the back of the cabin, saw the pilot and his own family engulfed. He unbuckled his seatbelt as flames hissed towards him, blocking his escape through the doors. He looked behind him and saw a gaping hole where the tail section had been. Frantically, he squeezed out through a tangle of broken cables, sliding, rolling, crawling, and finally running. He escaped barely ahead of the spreading inferno. Nine-year-old Paul Newman was now alone in uncharted jungle, surrounded by cannibals who had just murdered other missionaries. He was found by a tribesman from one of these tribes named Kusaho, who took him home and protected him for days until a rescue party came and found him. You see, Kusaho had witnessed the two missionaries who were just murdered, Stanley Albert Dale and Phil Masters. He had even tried to convince the other natives to not hurt them. Kusaho was determined to not let them hurt this boy who literally fell out of the sky near his house and miraculously survived. As a direct result of this act by Kusaho, peace was started between the natives and the missionaries and government. 
Also, tens of thousands of former cannibalistic tribespeople became Christians. And they're still there to this day. There are still Christian churches in that area because of this time period. Also, Paul Newman returned later to serve as a missionary in that same place. You see, God has a plan. He had a plan. Robert Jaffray was instrumental in sparking new missionary zeal in America and elsewhere for unreached people in the world. A.W. Tozer actually wrote his biography. Russell Dibler, who worked with Jaffray later, was the first white man into the jungle mountains of Erie and Jair, Papua New Guinea. After his death, his wife Darlene Dibler was used to inspire thousands of others for missionary work and writing her book, uh, Evidence Not Seen, which is considered a Christian classic at this point. Stanley Albert Dale and Phil Masters were missionaries in the next generation that followed Jaffray and Dibler's pioneering work among the tribes there. And Paul Newman, even though he's nine and just survived, Paul Newman was used to finish the work. All of it was part of God's plan. Sometimes a believer's part never saw the fruit. They just sowed. Others, like Paul Newman, got to see the fruit come to completion. It was God's purpose for certain believers to die, to endure great hardship, to be persecuted, or even to witness their whole family die in front of them. God's purpose was accomplished. These tribes received the gospel. Tens of thousands who otherwise would not have heard the gospel or accepted it became believers in Jesus Christ. So we have three different kinds of failures, quote-unquote. You have failures that you recover from because you learn from your disobedience and repent. You have failures that aren't failures at all, only apparent failures that God is using to achieve His will and purpose. And you have failures that are not recovered from because the person just justifies their sin and disobedience. They harden themselves and cling to their own will instead of submitting themselves to be used by God for His own purposes. All this naturally begs the question, how can we tell where we are? If you're in a season where there is hardship, difficulty, God seems far or absent, nothing is easy, and it seems that all there is is opposition, you might be asking, is God with me? The question is, are you with him? Are you submitted to his purpose for your life, whatever that might be? Uh, here's a series of things just to think about and ask yourself, kind of examine yourself to help kind of apply this to your life. Is your primary desire and goal to be exactly where God wants you to be, or are you seeking to live your best life now? You know, the Christian life is not necessarily the American dream. It may be God's will for you to struggle every day for the rest of your natural life. Are you okay with that? 
Not just, are you okay with that? But can you rejoice in that if you know it's God's will? Uh, Next, is everything in your life submitted to God? Everything. There is not some secret compartment of, "Well, well, this is my thing over here. Are you intentionally seeking to do God's perfect will as it's revealed in the Bible, in every area of your life? Or do you intentionally forget certain things because, well, that's just too much or unnecessary? Is there sin in your life that you are intentionally not getting rid of? Do you know that you're abiding in Christ right now at this moment? If you can't answer yes to those first questions, then you need to acknowledge your disobedience and recover. You aren't yet in a place where you can't get instantly back in fellowship with God. If you answered yes, and you know after deep and humble self-examination that you don't have any conscious disobedience in your life, then you might just be dealing with apparent failure. And it's important to note that if others are pointing out things in your life, then it's probably God trying to get your attention. If you don't deal with it, then you'll justify it just like Saul did and harden your own heart. And that's called rebellion. And if you're unwilling to yield to God's word about how life is supposed to be lived for him, again, that's God's word and not necessarily what others tell you is God's word or will, then you are in a a dangerous place spiritually. If you've grown cold to God, and you know it, then you need to humble yourself and seek his face. Remember what the man of God, Azariah, son of Oded, said to King Asa. He said, listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. We need to be diligent to take heed and not be careless about obeying God. There are consequences. Uh, For example, uh, when Rehoboam, son of Solomon, became king, uh, we read in 2 Chronicles 12, 1, it says, When the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. You see, when we're happy in the world, we can forget God quite easily. When we don't feel our need of him, which is sometimes why he makes sure that you feel your need for him. In 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20-21, we read, Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. You see, the people of God can absolutely harden themselves. And they'll even stone and kill those who try to get them to see that they're in the error. And one more passage, Second Kings 21, 14 through 15. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they have done evil in my sight, and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. See, God will 
cast off his people and turn them over to, you know, pretty much for chastisement. Actually, here's a couple more passages we're going to go over. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 through 20. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God, and the dread of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. See, you've been saved for a purpose, if indeed you've been saved. The purpose is to serve the Lord, to follow him and his purpose and in his agenda. And if you try to hold your own will and the will of the flesh to just pretty much build yourself a little kingdom, the American dream, which is not necessarily wrong to seek to do well in the world in the sense of provide for your family, good job, home, and things like that. That's not necessarily sin, so don't take that away from this. But if it takes you to not have Christ first in your life to do those things, then absolutely it's wrong. Consider First Chronicles 28, verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. The very same admonition that David gives to his son Solomon before Solomon becomes king. Later, though, listen to what it says. First Kings 11, 9 and 10. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So sometimes we say, well, if, I have an, if the Lord gives me a feeling, an experience, or this or that, then therefore I, know I won't turn away from him. I'll be strengthened because of an experience. Well, experiences can be strengthening. But Solomon literally saw the Lord twice in visions, and his father was King David, and he still turned away from him. And so if that kind of man in that setting can turn away from the Lord, don't think that you can't either. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him, who warns from heaven. When you allow yourself to be exercised by God's commandments, his chastisement, or by the hardships that he intentionally brings you to, and you learn to yield and give that intentional and conscious, yes, Lord, then you will gain the confidence and peace that you, that you want, that you desire. And there's a quote from a certain novel from the 1800s, that I think enunciates that kind of confidence of being knowing that you are exactly where God wants you to be. I mean, it's not a necessarily Christian novel, but the character in it was supposedly Christian. I just think it's an excellent statement that kind of expresses that confidence of knowing that you are in God's will perfectly. And because this is a, the character says, But did the clouds rain fire and the earth open beneath me? I would not stir, for I know who planted me here. And as long as he wills me to stand, neither men nor devils can move me hence. You see, that's the confidence, because you know that God is with you.
Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.